Rusty Quill presents. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Sin Carriers, a West Side fairy tale story, contains violent, graphic, and often unsettling content. Further, it takes place in a period of American history where certain now unacceptable outlooks were commonplace. In the spirit of pulling back the lid on the mythos of the American Wild West, many of these outlooks are espoused by various characters, whether outright or through their internal dialogue. These characters' thoughts and actions are their own, and not those of the author. Listener discretion is advised. Sin Carriers. We were introduced to Ducky, a young man on the lam after stealing thousands from an employer. Is he just a common criminal, or are there deeper motivations to his theft? Vasily was tormented by the overbearing Tolliver Loeb and then pulled from a mud puddle by a lanky, Spanish-speaking mercenary named Gatto. This tall fellow was quick with a knife when pressed by Pinkertons attempting to stall the train, but is he truly altruistic, or does he have ulterior motives? Sue comes across a mysterious doomsayer who reads her future in the cards of a game she's never seen, but that seems to remind her of her past. Sue pockets the three cards that proclaim to show her past, present, and future, but will reality align with what the woman said? You may find the answers to these questions and more on this episode of Sin Carriers, where the crew and passengers alike are heading eastbound into mystery. Without further ado, we present Episode 3, Introductions. The man Garvey sat astride the brass fittings of the service car handrail. His left leg twined into the crossbars beneath it like a stick bug blending into a reed. His hair was lank and perpetually damp, swaying in a regular time with the wind and the motion of the carriage beneath him. In her better days, his mother might have commented that he needed a haircut, that he looked as unkempt as the moss-draped swamp trees littering the shallows around their home in Louisiana. Before she became mush and bone beneath that same unclear water, before the black eyes and the shapes and the windows. She would have touched him above the ear and made such a comment and told him to hold still while she fetched her shears. As a child, he had feared his mother and her shears, more than he had the lifeless black fingers of the rotted cypress trees which held the loose dirt of his family home intact. Federal boys had diverted the river on account of some agrarian business and poisoned everything with fresh water. It was too clean for them, and so they perished. All the rest of the swamp went wrong soon after. 
Endless white carpets of swollen, rotten fish bobbing in the waves. In the end, that great net of water fingers had broken, and the silt and the reeds and his home had slid down, down into the muck beneath his feet. His mother's dead magnolia trees had followed her into the water, along with their home. The white boards had peeled and darkened and split, curling away from the water like ladies' skirts. Mosquitoes came thick in the night, dancing over the moonlit water rising around his bed, landing on the torn, yellow lace of his mother's wedding dress, which he had turned into a mosquito net. His eyes watched now the dancing of cloud light over the first of the great wood piles they'd loaded aboard the train. It was of an unplaceable fiber, ancient in his estimation by the cut and color, though somehow dark despite its lightness of grain. It had been part of a ship, or was even the whole of it, packed carefully now in this mobile ostuary. What light touched it seemed to linger too long on its surface, caught like lace on the limbs of a hawthorn tree. Still, too, did the eyes of men catch on the wood, as his had, as young Wickless's had, as Culver Penbrook's were at the moment. Perhaps he would come back to gaze on the lumber again, to take in the fine, dark details of the grain, to let his eyes wander and sink into the wet sands of its dancing color, to disappear. But he had found Penbrook, and the echoes of a voice in the back of his head had faded to a memory. The suggestion of a suggestion. The urge to look. To touch. To look. Penbrook had none of Garvey's steadiness, his careful distance. Bill Garvey was a man of tastes, of extreme and well-controlled desires. Where this Penbrook was a boy. He had a boy's dreams, a boy's needs. Garvey had seen the youth in the brothels the other company men frequented near the cheap trackside hotels. He liked loud conversation and fresh, young pussy. Drink and thrust and squirt. Fights he could win. Simpleton's causes and childish honor. Garvey's desires were as slow and darkly colored as the swamp that had eaten his mother and his home. He had become the swamp in his heart. His fingers were the stalks of mangroves and his eyes and ears the bats that danced around the fat, succulent flowers of the magnolia. His stomach was the wet earth, and his need no less persistent than the mosquitoes. His resolve, no more sturdy or effective than a thin screen of white lace. And so he could watch the darkly dancing cloud lights as they played over the wood and then the boy's face. It softened the longer the boy looked at the wood. He had been warned, of course, as they all had by the crippled stevedore. The shipman whose arm had been taken and who waddled alone across the docks to offload this peculiar cargo. Do not go in amongst the wood, he'd said. The train lurched over an uneven bit of track and clarity returned to Culver Penbrook for a moment. His eyes had gone soft before that. It emptied and unfocused the way eyes do near the climax of death or pleasure. Garvey had placed that expression on enough faces to know it as well as his own hand, though this moment wasn't about him. He was a stick bug tangled in brass, a bayou ghost clinging to a train railing. Softness returned to Penbrook, and the cloud lights began to dance once again, slipping over the wood and now over Penbrook himself. This peculiarity itself was enough to make Garvey shift some, 
a low, creaking movement that unsettled his shoulders and sank him to the side like a tree snake. He licked his lips, tasting something on the air. Penbrook swayed and reached toward the wood, stepping closer, closer. In a second, the stack of wood obscured him entirely from Garvey's sight. The older man's jaw lowered at the extreme left of its hinge, pausing for a moment before snapping to the right with a loud crack. He cleared his throat with some consternation and stood as the cloud lights faded, figuring there would be nothing more to see. Young Wickless had drawn close and snuffed out the cloud lights as well, and then had gone on his merry way. A great, startling shift of light froze Garvey in place. It caught in his eyes, laying inside his pupil like the second light of an alligator's eyes, and not leaving even after the fading of the source. He felt something hot in the air, like electricity bouncing off the crackling towers he'd once seen at a fair. With that came the smell of popcorn and paper cups. A girl child's hot, sweating hand in his own, her little kitten nails cutting into his flesh as she came to know the depth and darkness of the woods. Black eyes and a pale face at his mother's dirty windows. Penbrook screamed and the lights vanished. The smell of popcorn and the taste of the child's throat were whipped away by a chill wind. There were shuffles and shouts in the cabin around him, then the metallic rattle of doors being slid open and boots on the decks. He slipped off his railing and joined seamlessly with the forming crowd, slipping to the front like silk. He found Penbrook wide-eyed mad and squalling, cradled in the arms of a shirtless, boyish young woman with his remaining arm clawing at the sky. The woman had him wrapped up in her legs like a calf, and was binding down the stump of his arm with her own belt. Blood smeared her dusty skin and the cotton wrapping she'd wound over her breasts. Some had gotten in her hair and brushed soft, brownish strokes over Penbrook's pallid face. There, there now, she whispered to him. Hush yourself. The gathered men watched in silence as Penbrook steadily went slack in the woman's arms. His eyes remained as wide and clouded as the sky overhead. The woman looked around at the closest men, a Negro teenager and a soft-bodied white boy in his mid-twenties. Go on, give me a stick, you, she said to the soft-bodied boy. He looked around, eyes resting a touch too long on the woodpile, before darting inside and then returning with a machined bit of metal the length of his forearm. The woman used it to twist the belt a full two inches into the skin above Penbrook's elbow. Then she undid the thin black cord holding her hair in place and tied it over the end of the stick above her makeshift ligature, fixing it to Penbrook's bicep. Garvey heard a splash and turned to see Wickless vomiting onto the decking. He chuffed at the display and turned back to the woman, who was being helped out from underneath Penbrook's slack body by the black boy. God damn it, Lord Almighty, she said, looking herself over. Her body was lean and tightly muscled. Thin scars marred the light brown skin of her belly, creating a path along the natural lines of her stomach the eye could not deter from. A man near her, a driver named Cutting who rarely worked with them, unbuttoned his shirt and handed it to the young woman. She hissed at him and flicked her fingers dismissively. What I need is some fucking water, she muttered to herself, leaving the staring men and the unconscious Penbrook to travel back inside the rear car. 
Garvey saw her unraveling the blood-soaked bandages as the door slid shut behind her and licked his lips, considering a reason he might imagine up to follow her. Nothing came to him, however, and it would be impossible to travel past the crowd. What's the commotion back here? Tolliver Loeb's fat, familiar voice called from the rear of the car. Sighs rose up and many of the gathered sneaked away, eager to not be caught up in Tolliver's net. The man was a consummate nickel and dimer who would swear before the eyes of God every one of his employees was somehow conspiring to steal from him. If not outright, then by collecting wages on unworked hours. Minutes, seconds. Garvey had been with Loeb long enough he was immune to such treatment. But the others were smart not to dawdle. Culver lost his damn arm, Wickless said, in high health again now that the boss was around. Garvey lumped a wad of tobacco into his mouth and set to chewing it as Tolliver made his way around the far side of the woodpile. This one was in the far rear of the train, nestled between the caboose and the first of the sleeping cars the drivers and security workers occupied. Its destination was so close they were only a few hours away, and just disconnecting the car on an offshoot track was sufficient enough to drop the load and be done with it. The others were arranged between the working cars and the engine. Good God, Tolliver said, pirouetting to walk the other direction when he saw Pembroke. The man's eyes fluttered open and shut, his mouth chewing away to some secret missile only he knew. What happened here? Wickless opened his mouth to say something, but Garvey stepped forward, answering loudly and pushing himself to the front of the pack. Now at the front, he observed the largesse of the damage done. Boy, I was inspecting this load here. Garvey said, pointing at the wood. It carried no hint of the cloud lights now, and even its grain seemed lighter. Ebony's calm to soft browns. I was yonder, saw him acting queer about something. Garvey looked down at Pembroke and then at the wood. There was an inverted teardrop of red about in the middle of the pile, but not a hint of Pembroke's presence other than that. The blood covered an area fitted so tightly together there wasn't space for a knife blade much less a finger. Moreover, there was no sign of flesh, bone, or cloth, and nothing on the ground to suggest what Pembroke was missing had gone anywhere else. Tolliver noticed just as much, and said so. Where the hell's his arm? Tolliver asked, pointing at the stacks. He stared a second longer than maybe he might need to complete that inspection, and Garvey saw a slight softening in his eyes before the man stepped back and rubbed the bridge of his nose. In there, I suppose, Garvey said. Tolliver shook his head, making a point now to look at Pembroke instead of the wood. He muttered something about that being impossible, but he failed to elaborate, sufficing to rub at the corners of his mustache instead. We can pull the pile apart, try to fish it out at the next station. Uh, you and you, Tolliver said, pointing to the men closest to Garvey. They were Miskel Coventry and Donald Bishop, plain men of brown and black hair, respectively, who'd served as coachmen with Loeb for going on two years. Take him to the platform by the sleeping cars and have the Russian gentleman see to him. I think he's a doctor. Garvey moved aside and the men carted off Pembroke with a great deal of cursing and stumbling. When they passed, he could hear Pembroke muttering the same nonsense under his breath over and over again. Never was, never will be. 
Never was, never will be. Garvey watched until they'd gone and then spat over the edge, looking over the dry, brown grass and farmland stretching out around the train. It was all painfully dry out here, so bad the inside of his nose would crack and bleed at night, would wake him up with the false promise of blood when he smeared the taste of it across his lips. Are you there, Mr. Garvey? Tolliver said, and Garvey turned to him with a limp smile. Yes, sir. We will not be pulling this stack apart for a missing arm. Understand? He asked, sniffing and clearing his throat and wiggling his mustache. He pointed at the blood smear, already setting in dark brown as the California air wicked the moisture from it. I want that cleaned as good as you can get it. And you supervise the offloading. I don't intend to finish this run one iota, one second slower than intended. Understand? Oh, you can trust me with that, Mr. Lowe. Garvey said, tipping his head down and watching as Tolliver stormed away. Then he was alone again, his stickish body waving in time with the gentle sway of the train. Behind him, he could hear idle chatter in the security car, people talking about themselves to offset the shock of an accident. He pressed his own hand against the spot Garvey had been touching, the uppermost point of the arch of blood splattered down the tightly set wood. There was nothing for a long moment, just the grain of dense, sun-baked wood beneath his hand, the tack of drying blood. Then he could feel it. A subtle pull, the drag of a leech on a limb, sucking, suckling pressure against his hand. The cloud lights began again, but he pulled his hand away and turned to stare into the heart of the California countryside. The momentary euphoria faded and all that was left was the stickiness of Pembroke's blood. Garvey worked the lump of tobacco free from his lip with his tongue and let it slop into the mess on his hand. He rolled the slurry around in his palm and then lumped it all back into his mouth. Chewing hard on it and swishing the sour, coppery juice around his teeth before spitting the reeking gob out into the lettuce fields they were passing through. He idly licked the blood off his fingers and wiped his hands dry on his trousers while the hunched shadows of women crept long ways in the direction he'd come, their backs large and heavy with baskets. Then, ignoring the cloying scent of sweat and perfume coming from the wood stack, he left to find water and rags. sullen priest asked Ducky as the boy shut the door behind him. Ducky gave a look to the old man and then the naked shoulders of the young woman at the back of the cabin. Water sparkled over her skin in the dimness, reflecting what scant light shone through the mostly shuttered windows. Her nakedness was fine enough a distraction, but what drew his eyes and held them were the rash of scars across her back. Whipping scars, he knew. He'd seen plenty enough of them in his life, there was no question as to the origin. The worst of all of them, however, was an ugly lightning bolt traveling up from the back of her neck and into her hairline. 
a cutting scar of which he could see a finger's length, but that was all. Where it disappeared, her hand turned pale, leaving a tidy streak in the otherwise dark, nape-length strands. As he watched, she bundled her hair in her hand and squeezed out a handful of blood. He ain't fit for this sort of work anymore, Ducky said to the priest, breaking his focus on the woman's back. The woman's steady, silent bathing had transfixed him less than a second, but he still felt rude. He took his seat by the Mexican again, shifting so he wouldn't be tempted to take another look. Lost his arm in the pile. He jerked a thumb in the woman's direction. She put a wrap on him. Probably saved his life. He was muttering and waving the bloody part all around. That explains why she was walking around naked. The young native man sitting across the aisle from Ducky muttered. He feigned a lack of investment in the conversation, but he'd stopped flipping through his book. She tossed off her shirt and jacket right away, Ducky said. Handed them to that chubby boy who was sitting in here earlier. We saw him drop those off when he came inside to get a piece of that machine he was carrying around with him, the priest said, pointing to the seat behind the native man. Ducky saw the woman's clothing laying in a neat pile atop the booth's table and noticed a spot of blood on the wrist of her jacket. He nodded his head toward it. Looks like she didn't quite get out the way in time, Ducky remarked. The priest followed his eyes and nodded. That was on her before we left the station, the Mexican, Gato, said. He curled up on his seat against the wall beside him, somehow folding all the length of himself beneath his poncho and the wide straw hat. If he looked up to even see what they were talking about, Ducky hadn't seen. He sighed and dared a glance back at the woman snapping his attention back to the top of the booth's table and feeling heat rise in his face. She'd finished cleaning herself and was now casually walking back down the length of the train, breasts out and bouncing. Good God, the native man muttered, burying himself further in the book. Ducky heard the woman chuckle to herself and was surprised to hear Gatto join her. What's so funny, you? She asked, clearly not bothered. Ducky looked up to see the man had sat up and kicked his hat back to look at the woman. She had pulled her shirt on, but had yet to button it. Ducky forced himself to just stare out the window. I haven't seen a woman like you in a while, the man said. It's refreshing. Oh yeah? The woman asked. Ducky heard her boots adjust on the floor, and from her candor it was clear she was displaying herself. You like what you see, tall boy? Gato erupted into rough, throaty laughter. Oh, yes, very much, he said, crossing his legs and removing his hat to set it over his knee. Ducky realized there was something off about the man's height. He didn't seem quite so tall, so lanky as he did when he'd buried the knife in the ceiling. The man's hair was a short, black mess that shot off in every direction. Without the hat... His eyes seemed normal, if still oddly bright. But all compliments aside, I am afraid my predilections lay elsewhere. Oh? How's that? The woman asked, still standing half-dressed in the middle of the cabin. Could you please button your shirt? The native man asked softly. Ducky heard her make a kiss noise at him and then the sound of rustling fabric. Boys, my sweet... Gato said in a sing-song voice. Boys and lying are my only vices. God in heaven, the native boy muttered, 
Lord, look at you, the woman said, stepping up beside Ducky and stretching out a hand. Gato's arm snaked out of his poncho and over the table without him having to move. They shook. Name's Sue. Just that. Sue. Gato, the man replied. Also mononymical. He cocked his head at Ducky, his smile broadening when the boy turned his eyes down to the table. I think, uh, perhaps, introductions are in order all around. The room remained silent. Milled over came, the priest said, raising his hand. He'd tucked his pocket Bible away to watch the show a long while ago. Gatto tilted his head at the man and then pointed at his face. That's the mark, huh? He asked. That's the name, the priest replied. The metal door slid open and the pudgy boy who'd assisted Sue with the tourniquet stepped inside. All eyes turned to him and he froze, smiled, and nodded at everybody. He shut the door slowly behind him, clearly not knowing what to do. What's your name, son? We're going through introductions back here. Oh, my gosh, the young man said. Well, my name is Victor Melanese, but everybody calls me Vicky. You can call me Vicky. Or Victor, or, or Vicky, whatever you'd... Whatever you'd... He leaned to the side and made a series of dry, abrupt coughs into the crook of his elbow. Hi, <coughs> uh, I'm 26 and I work for... Uh, I work for Blackwell Mechanics. I uh, am uh, a salesman. I sell... Uh, hold on a second. Sue gave him a worried look, anticipating something. No, it's all right there, you... She said. We got it, oh... Oh, there he goes. Vicky cleared his throat a number of times while taking out a heavy leather suitcase. He flopped it open on the table beside the native man, who could no longer remain focused on his book, and pulled free an absolutely monstrous hunk of black metal. He dropped it onto the table with enough force the native man threw his hands up and rolled his eyes, scooting further away from everybody. Oh, I'm sorry, so sorry, Vicky said, patting the man's arm. I am, uh, uh, <clears throat> Vicky started. This time he caught his breath and something dislodged in the space behind his eyes. The freeing of some unseen cogs and sprockets that had once softened his expression and smoothed his speech. I am Victor Melanese and this is the Blackwell Mechanics Automatic Typewriter. He started again, his voice and cadence far more confident. Do you have trouble finishing your typographics on time? Are you sick of light strokes or unconfident print work from your secretary? Do people simply have trouble reading your handwriting? He went through the room, person by person, smiling and making full eye contact and settling his last question on the now fully dressed Sue. She hadn't sat, but was leaning against the back of the seat behind Ducky. She smelled like sweat and blood. Boy, you think I know how to read? She asked with a laugh. Vicky smiled, nodded, and coughed into the crook of his arm a few times before continuing. With the Blackwell automatic typewriter, you can have the ease of expression afforded to only the most capable calligraphers in the comfort of your home or office, Vicky continued. Well, the Blackwell automatic typewriter comes with a reel-to-reel ink ribbon that allows each of its individual typefaces to print cleanly each time in a crisp and easy-to-read serif font our scientists have determined is 75 to 95% more legible than standard handwriting. Can't type? Don't worry. 
Each Blackwell automatic typewriter comes with a tips and standards professional typing course manual right in the box. He moved to retrieve said manual and Sue stood and waved her hands side to side. Lord, no, God, that's enough, you, she said. When it was clear he couldn't stop reciting, he kept talking the entire time he crossed the aisle. Sue patted his shoulders and set him down in the seat opposite the native man. Vicky seemed relieved by this, though he kept reciting his sales litany under his breath and nodding along to some unknown rhythm in his head. Well, that's something, Sue muttered. Who are you now? The native man took a breath and opened his mouth, closed it, and looked at Vicky. I ain't under the impression he's gonna stop, friend. You can wait if you want, though. She chuckled, and the native man gave Vicky a forlorn look. It was clear he was going to go the entire way through his little speech. He was now selling the tabletop on the value of easy-to-replace ink ribbons. Good God, the native man said, drumming his fingers on the table. The rhythm stopped Vicky mid-sentence for just a second. Then he repeated the same pattern and went back to his speech. The native man sighed. My name is Elam, Elam Price. I'm 24 and I'm... I'm not sure why I'm adding extra information. You two only shared your first names. Never mind. He crossed his arms and looked off into the back of the cabin where there was nobody to bother him. Sue laughed, to his surprise, and crossed her arms too. Well, shit, that's because I don't know how old I am, she said. And my full name is a bunch of nonsense people always ask me questions about and I don't have the rightful answers to. I guess, well... You can call me Sue Cincinnati, or Cincinnati Sue, or whatever. Nah, I just call myself Sue, though, and most others do, too. I guess I'm about 27. Older than you, younger than him. She jerked a thumb in Mildover's direction. Are you from Cincinnati? Elam asked, cautiously rejoining the conversation. Sue shrugged. Nah, it's just on my papers, she said. There was something in her posture suggesting she didn't want to share more. Well, Elam said, sighing again and looking at Vicky. The man hadn't yet let up, though he was clearly blowing through the presentation at breakneck speed. I'm Elam Price, like I said. I'm from, well, I grew up in the north, in Oregon. I moved south for a job, but it didn't work out. He trailed off. On account of your engine? Sue asked. He flashed her an angry look and she threw her hands up. Just saying? Her hands twisted to point at her face. They don't like me much either. Elam sighed and tapped his thumbs on the table. What are you? Italian or something? No. God damn it. Sue said, sighing and looking at the ceiling. She muttered under her breath. Why does everybody think I'm a goddamn Italian? I'm sorry, he said, more for custom than apology's sake. What do you do? The priest asked. He sounded far more interested than he looked. Accounting, Elam said. I'm an accountant. Huh, Sue said. Bet you could actually use one of Vicky's riding machines, huh? It's kind of does numbers, right? She looked at Vicky and the man shook his head quickly still blasting through the gospel of QWERTY keyboard layout. Well, shit. It's fine, Elam said. He looked at Ducky. How about you? Um, 
Ducky started, not knowing what he should say. There was every possibility in the world the Pinkertons who tried stopping the train would catch up with them again and start asking after him. Then again, even if they did, these people knowing his name or not wouldn't matter a lick. They were looking for a black boy, and they'd find him that way first. Duckworth Jefferson, he said after a while. I'm 20. Sue sucked her teeth loudly and rolled her eyes, slapping her side of the seat. Boy, you ain't no 20, she said. You're 15 on my life. No, ma'am, he said, giving her an indignant look. I'm 20. She rolled her head back and looked down at him, frowning. I give you 17, she said. But that's it. You'll give me 20, woman. They all but spat back. He didn't like being talked to that way by any lady, especially one that walked around naked like she owned the world. She laughed at him, but her shoulders set in a loose, airy way that turned her arms into coiled ropes. Even though she was smiling, her eyes were hot and direct. They had been olive, almost brown in color, but now seemed to glow green in the slash of sunlight crossing her face. The few splashes of blood she hadn't gotten were oil black in contrast. Say that again, she said, softly. It wasn't a question, not really. Ducky bit his lip and clenched his fist, not knowing if he had it in him to trounce the woman. Hoping, really, he didn't. But Gatto tapped his leg under the table. He looked at the man, who frowned at him and gave him a small shake of his head. Um... Sorry, Ducky said. Not yet, Sue replied, tersely. She let her head roll to the side and sucked at her teeth. The noise was harsh, grating. She pointed at his face, which threatened to make the anger bubble up in him again, but Gato tapped him one more time. And you are 16, get over it. This ain't a fucking conscription. She sat down hard enough to bounce him off the seat. Nobody cares how damn old you are. Ducky took a few breaths to calm himself. You said you were from Oregon, the priest asked Elam, trying to change the conversation. Elam nodded and adjusted to speak to him better. Um, well, I'm fairly familiar with many of the tribes in that region. He began to speak some Native American language, but Elam just stared at him. What? I don't understand what you're saying, he replied. The priest blinked, seemed to think of something, and then said more phrases in a different language. Elam cut him off, shaking his head and waving his hand. I have no idea what you're saying, he replied. The priest, seeming nonplussed, got ready to try again, but Elam interrupted. It's... I'm sure you're saying whatever you're saying perfectly well, but I don't speak any of that language. Ah, I'm sorry the priest said, pulling out his pocket Bible and worrying it between his hands. Are, I could. What tribe are you from, then? I don't have a tribe or any of that stuff, Elam said. I'm an American, formerly of Oregon and hopefully soon to be of New York. I speak English and I'm fairly proficient in Spanish, not enough so, unfortunately, to move south of the border for work instead. He shrugged. That tribes and language and whatever 
it means nothing to me. If anything, it's a detriment. Uh, I understand. The priest said, looking hollow for some reason. My apologies, Elam. Think nothing of it, Elam replied, flicking a hand in the air. My... People call me Ducky, by the way, Ducky said. He cooled down from the near argument with Sue and now felt bad about it. More to the point, he didn't want people going around calling him Duckworth. Ducky, Vicky, Vicky, Ducky, Vicky said. At some point, he'd finished his monologue. He took a breath and gave the room an embarrassed look. I'm sorry about that. No bother, Sue said. And everybody else said something of the same. Are you addled? I know a boy got kicked and he ended up doing like you do, except he had to look out at the horizon and say, like, colors and names of birds over and over again. People do kick me, actually, but I've been doing it my whole life, Vicky replied, not quite understanding what Sue said. My father used to touch the fireplace poker to the back of my arm to get me to stop, but even that didn't work, unfortunately. He casually rolled up his sleeve and showed off the ruddy lines of scar tissue embedded in his flesh. He did his best. Vicky brushed his fingers over the scar and smiled, fixing his sleeve. So you say, the priest muttered. Gato, silent until now, muttered something under his breath in Spanish nobody could understand save Elam, who gave the man an alarmed look and took a deep breath. How do you get by? Oh, wonderfully, Vicky said with a smile. I, I have a way of assuring myself before I start my day or do anything... Stressful? That helps me not bother anybody with myself. I mean, well, uh, <laughs> one of those little tricks of mine is to run through my sales pitch. I, I don't like train stations, for instance, but if I go over my sales pitch at a train station, people just think I'm practicing. He grinned, and Sue grinned right back at him. <laughs> Aren't you something? She said. You any good at selling? Oh, yes, Vicky replied. I'm what Mr. Blackwell calls a top earner. And I do very well because of that. I don't often, in fact, sell to individuals, but to small businesses and corporations. The Blackwell Automatic Typewriter is my newest venture. We haven't sold very many, but I hope to really wow some people at the fair in St. Louis. My bread and butter used to be counting and security machines, cash registers, you know. But these writing machines are an untapped market. He grinned broadly. The real money isn't in the machine, but in the ink ribbons and the paper, which we're going to corner the market in. Why not just sell paper and ink ribbons or whatever? Ducky asked. Vicky blinked and Elam began to chuckle quietly to himself. I, well, you see, he started, clearly becoming unnerved. He coughed into his arm and began talking. The Blackwell automatic typewriter. Bang! Sue shouted, pointing a finger pistol at Vicky's chest and scaring the entire back cabin silent. Vicky stopped mid-sentence and clutched his chest mouth flapping like a fish, but not continuing on with his sales litany from earlier. After a long few seconds, he took a breath, everybody in the cabin watching him. Oh, oh my, he said, looking at Sue with wide-eyed fascination. You really scared me. It works on hiccups, she said with a shrug, tipping her hat in a way that hid her small smile from everybody but the priest. Ducky turned to Gato, Still a little sore, the man had kicked him during his little spat with Sue. True, 
he'd probably done Ducky a favor, but he didn't have to like it. So, how about you? Ducky asked the man. Gato had pulled a loose straw from his hat and was nibbling idly at the end of it. His eyes shifted to Ducky without his head moving at all. He said nothing in reply. Ducky decided to push. Where are you from, Mexico? How old are you? The lanky man took the straw out of his mouth and twisted it in his fingers, watching the end spiral and bob. Then his fingers made a flurry of movement that cartwheeled the straw end over end like a marching baton. This motion ended with the straw seamlessly between his teeth, right at the far corner of his mouth. I'm the oldest in this cart, he said. Probably not on the train, definitely not in this country. He yawned and stretched, his legs pushing into Elam's booth across the aisle. And I'm not Mexican, though I've been through there and part south many times. He rose gracefully to his feet, still having to crook his neck at an angle to avoid the ceiling. I was raised in La Villa de Malafortuna in Castilla. It's not there anymore. He seemed to bow when he said this, using the momentum to slip his hat back atop his head. We're here, he said, and the train wheels began to screech underfoot. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Moira tapped the coat room door and pressed her cheek against it, whispering to the man inside. My father's gone, Mr. Tavarish, she said. You can come out now. He did so, shaking and sweating and making numerous adjustments of his coat in order to get comfortable. His collar was positively soaked through. 
Moira looked to him as an angel might in that second, and without thinking, he took her hand and half knelt in the hallway, brushing his lips over her knuckle. Then he stood and shook the same hand, giving her a slight nod of his head and walking away stiffly. Mr. Tavarish, she called after him, stifling a small laugh. Mr. Tavarish, that's the direction he went. He's supervising the offload. Vasily pivoted mid-stride like a soldier on the march and shuffled quickly back in Moyer's direction, fanning himself with his hand. She pouted at him and shook her head, pulling out a frilly lady's fan and handing it to him. Thank you, God, he said, ostensibly to this woman, who, in his mind, may as well have been sent by God. She held her elbow and cocked her head at him, watching as he fanned himself dry with her ostentatious whalebone fan. Eventually, he swallowed, took a great breath, and undid his tie slightly. Can I impose on you to tell me where he won't be for the next hour or so? I don't... I don't think I will survive any more of his questions. He's talking. My God. Moira laughed, putting the fingers of one hand to her lips and the others on Vasily's wrist. Mr. Tavarish, she said. Vasily. He replied, I am putty in your hands, young woman. I am like a child. I do not deserve such politeness. He flipped her fan back open and went back to cooling himself. Mr. Tolliver Loeb had availed himself of Vasily's company, much against the latter's obvious wishes, during the entirety of the ride to this first station in the California Plains. Vasily had intended to read or ponder the vastness of the American countryside, but Tolliver had infested his room and then his body like a great, bloviating bedbug. The man loomed in his mind now, a chattering, slavering monstrosity. He had discovered that, of the fat man's many vices, cigars were the chief most he indulged in amongst company. Vasily had never minded the indulgence of tobacco. It was such a common vice where he was born, the streets of his home country were littered with smokers and their leavings. Tobacco wrappings and ash and little tobacco bags and cigar stumps and all manners of stink. But he'd never seen tobacco indulged as this, this man, this Tolliver, indulged. He had sat in front of Vasily. He had forced himself into Vasily's cabin and, against the smaller man's wishes, began to partake in conversation over coffee. Vasily loved coffee. Who didn't? But the man did not bring coffee for Vasily. He had brought coffee only for himself and, 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 the first thing he'd asked Vasily had been, do you like coffee? To which Vasily had attempted to respond, yes. But before he could speak, this fat, bloviating, foul-smelling, money-obsessed American had responded for him, had answered the question he'd asked himself. Of course you do, Tolliver had said without a pause. Who doesn't? Then Tolliver sat with a steaming cup of coffee, white with cream, four sugars still floating, floating on the surface, on the edge of Vasily's bed. There was only a single sort of couch in the sleeper cabin, and the bed. Tolliver made no effort to sit anywhere else or to even ask if he could sit. This alone was enough, likely, to have given Vasily one of his fits. Fits, or what his mother had called them. They were no great deal most of the time. His life, 
His early life especially had been a mostly placid affair where his greatest concerns were those of any well-bred child. School, dalliances, and rejections by young women, or, in Vasily's case, the occasional not a young woman. Regardless, people were mannered and possessed a degree of respectful distance at all times. Later life had come with its many problems, but none of them had prepared him for Tolliver Loeb. It should be said that Tolliver finished his coffee without incident, Vasily nodding along and believing erroneously that the man was only using him as an entertaining diversion while enjoying his afternoon coffee, the way a normal human might read a newspaper or watch birds in the sky. This was not the case. Toward the end of his cup of coffee, Tolliver pulled a fat, 20-centimeter-long stogie from inside his jacket pocket. He offered nothing to Vasily, not even the politeness of a first refusal. In the short second where Vasily was preparing to have this animal begin smoking in his personal apartments, Tolliver instead began to chew on the cigar. To chew on the cigar and talk and drink his coffee all at the same time. It was at this moment Vasily began to feel himself leaving his body. There was a lightness to his heart he felt might become a heart attack. A lightness, in fact, he hoped was a heart attack. He opened his mouth to suggest to tell this absolute animal of a man, this rude, bed-sitting, cigar-eating monster, to leave his apartment. Then, Tolliver spat into the dregs of his coffee. A fat, oily lump of tobacco juice that splashed into the coffee cup with such force a small amount of liquid was ejected and landed on Tolliver's shirt cuff. Frozen, Unable to speak or, really, to think his own personal thoughts again, Vasily watched as Tolliver struck a match and lit the cigar. Puffed twice, spat again, ate the cigar, smoked the cigar, refilled the coffee cup. Vasily had stood without meaning to, his body propelling him away from a known danger under only the most ancient, instinctual of impulses. He was stopped at the door by Tolliver's only direct question. The fat man's only pause in the endless half-articulations and the gulping, chomping, smoking that filled the room for at least five minutes. Where are you going? He asked, confusion plain on his face. Vasily had said nothing, merely walked out into the hall, shaking like he'd just survived a shelling. He might have been able to cool off had Tolliver not added, Well, I'll be here when you get back. Moira had found him shortly after, pale and sliding down the walls and clawing at the knot of his necktie. She'd gathered what she could of the situation from him and then had hidden him in the linen closet, where he'd stayed for something like 40 minutes or 4,000 years. During that time, she'd shooed her father out of his room and done her best to air out the stench of him. I'm so sorry, Mr. Tavarish, she said again now here in the hall. He nodded quietly and handed back her fan. She folded it and disappeared it away to a button clip on the small of her back. Moira busied her hands with his suit and his hair, tending to him like a mother despite her youth. He openly welcomed her ministrations. The young woman's cool, white-gloved hands danced through his hair and over his lapels, which she finally set with a smart jerk. Well, I suppose we've done what we can, she said. We should see a barber if there's one here in the station will only be a short time, but that might be enough for a good tidying up. 
Thank you, Miss Moira, he said, taking her hand off his brow and squeezing it. He gave her a slight nod and took a deep breath. I think he has almost killed me. A great shouting arose from the back of the cabin, and Moira looked over her shoulder to find the source of it. A Russian! Where's a Russian? Men were screaming. Vasily shook his head and tried to stand taller. He was so stressed he felt almost inebriated. They're coming for me, he whispered to Moira. Your father intends to finish the job. She chuffed and slapped him lightly on his collarbone, striding forward to meet the oncoming hordes before they rounded the tight corners at the end of the hallway. He heard her raising her voice a moment later, and she did sound alarmed. She rushed back into the hallway, walking toward him with worried eyes and a tight expression. Let them take me, he thought to himself, though he knew he was being overdramatic. He could almost feel Yumiko wrapping her arms around his stomach from behind. More arms touching his chest and her face along his back. Be calm, Vasily, she whispered to him. Yes, my love, he returned, feeling the air he was breathing once again. The burlap feeling of suffocation that had accompanied Tolliver had gone. Mr. Tavarish? Moira asked. Do you know anything about surgery? Her expression was so direct he felt choked by the answer. Colt Wickless took stock of the rabble they'd put together for the Blackwell job, a silhouette cutting a long black hole into the wall of the station. He was a lobe driver, a cattleman by trade that now made his nickels moving carts of this and that eastward from the coast. That left him little to do on this run, though he knew Blackwell had ordered Lobe to keep hands for gun holding as much as for Rain's work. Their horses were stockaded up in the middle of the train, where they wouldn't stink up the finer cars, but he doubted they'd get much use out of them until they dropped the things off in Pittsburgh. Sell them along the road, maybe. He'd considered was still considering, rustling a few ponies and cutting for the north if they had a good, dark night in station. Loeb had paid for this job up front, and there was no bonus to stick it through to the end. A couple fresh horses and one ride would be a fine way to keep himself out of work for a few months. Then again, traveling quick by rail in a big company did have its perks, a level of anonymity that was worth its weight in gold. He'd only gotten a few looks at the stragglers who'd signed up for the run through Blackwell himself. Garvey and some of the others had taken to calling them back-enders because their berthing was in the rear behind even the driver's cars. It kept them plenty downwind of the horses, which was probably nice, but Wickless had a sense for how things could change when people got talked about badly. It opened you up, left you alone, put you in a place where a single finger could shift the blame for anything onto you. He finished rolling a cigarette and lit it with a metal pocket lighter, snapping the thing open and closed a few times while watching the back-enders disembark. Aside from the outrageously tall Mexican, they were a sorry lot. A scarred priest, a Negro, an Indian, and a cross-dresser. The only other white with them was the pudgy simpleton who tried selling him a writing machine when they'd first met. 
That one looked like a marshmallow stuffed up in a better man's suit. Of all of them, the cross-dressing girl was the only one he had any interest in. He'd written her off when they'd been in line getting their names called, but she'd had quite a pair hidden up in that shirt and a tight bit of everything else underneath. He wondered if she took care of herself in that or if she treated her bottom half like a man would. It was a consideration he'd make if the time came for it, but in any case, it was nice to have some portable pussy within hand's reach. He smiled and tipped his hat at her. Hello? He said. Yeah, she replied, walking past him along the short boardwalk to the post exchange. Blackwell's chubby salesboy kept in stride behind her, sweating and wringing his hat and muttering the same shit he'd told Wickless earlier that day. Nonsense about keyboards and QWERTYs, whatever the hell those were. Wigless tilted his hat to get a better look at the cross-dresser's ass and decided that, yes, she was worth sticking around for. Despite all that swagger and those clothes, she still moved like a woman ought to. That sway in the hips they couldn't help. They are made for it, cold old boy, he said to himself, grinning at his own thoughts and dropping down to take a better look at the dinky little farm town they'd stopped in. Everything that wasn't dust around them was orange trees and lettuce, it seemed. Acres upon acres of the worst fucking vegetable God had ever dreamed up, and fruit you couldn't even spice up a drink with. He sighed and stepped out onto the main drag, which was now separated from half the houses in town by the train. It was all a lot of the same nothing he'd seen in every small town he'd ever visited. A saloon, a restaurant called Restaurant some sort of department store with about a whole floor to its name and tenements on top. A barber. The back of the post exchange was a defunct, two-story sort of barn that used to be a smithy. Stray nails still littered the floor, along with a single horseshoe that had fallen from the rusted hangnail over the doors. He stepped inside, craning his neck around and taking in the place. Cheap, replaceable tools littered the walls and floor beside the turtle-shell-looking furnace. That itself was crumbling, but mostly intact, despite the nests and layers of bird shit covering its flue. He went over to it and opened the rusted door on the front of the thing. He had no idea what it was for, but you could easily pack a few people inside and still shut it up tight. Lord, what you might hide in there, he muttered to himself, looking up at the rafters. Enough noontime sunlight pushed through the rotten shingles overhead to light up the whole of the interior, casting it all in a golden glow. Wickless reached up and pulled on a rusted chain dangling from a pulley system still bolted overhead. It came loose with a sudden rattle and he had to leap aside to keep from getting brained by a rusted tackle block. Lord almighty, he said, laughing to himself and checking the crown of his cap. How about that? You ain't supposed to do that, a little girl said behind him. Wickless whipped around, still holding the chain tight. He found a child, maybe ten years old, watching him from the shaft of light falling through the doors. She had her arms crossed and her little hip kicked out to the side. How's that now? he asked, cocking his head to the side and smiling. You the sheriff around these parts, little lady? She moved her chin up but took a few steps back as he approached. He saw her reticence and made a show of looking at the chain in his hand. Oh, sorry about that, he said, dropping the chain. 
It made a thump and kicked up dust that glowed in the light around the girl. She herself seemed to glow some to him, dressed as she was in a shapeless blue-white dress and little boy's work boots wrapped up tight with cord. You think I'm not supposed to be here? You ain't, she said. This is my grampy's barn, and he don't like people sniffing around. Oh, well, I'm sure I know your grampy, and I think he said it's fine, Wickless said, taking a few steps closer. He smiled and kneeled down, still too far to touch the girl, which the both of them knew. Him kneeling still went a ways toward calming her, though. She kept her arms crossed, but the tension left her shoulders. He rested his hands on his thighs and cocked his head to the side in a friendly way, smiling. I don't know you, she said. My grampy runs a PX and he don't know you neither. Now that's a goddamn lie, Wickless said, raising his voice just for the girl's benefit and putting on a sad face. She didn't know what to do about getting such a reaction from a grown-up. He adjusted his right knee, setting his toes, and slapped his thighs. I ain't been lied to like that by such a pretty young girl in a long damn time. You can't say damn, the girl said, biting her lip. She moved her hands around to the small of her back, looking out the door and hoping nobody'd heard her get scolded. Well, you just said it, Wickless said, tilting his head toward her. She made an exaggerated sigh and put her hands on her hips, leaning toward him. That's because you can say it to tell people they ought not to. Everybody knows that, she said. Oh, Wickless replied, dropping his eyes to the ground and pawing through the dusty, mostly rotten hay around his knees. Well, I wouldn't want you to get in trouble. I won't tell in any case. You know, I can keep a secret. He stopped suddenly, pulling the hay away from nothing in particular, and then cursed under his breath. Then he gave the girl a sheepish look, grinning and taking his hat off. Sorry about that. I won't tell, the little girl muttered, looking outside. It was a beautiful day. She stepped closer, looking at the spot of concrete he'd cleared of hay. What you doing over there anyway? You looking for something? Oh, yeah, Wickless said. You know how this used to be a blacksmithy? The girl gave him a surprised look, pursed her lips, and then nodded slowly. He smiled at her. Well, I had my horse, Trigger, shooting here, going on, oh, Lord, maybe ten or so years ago, and wouldn't you know it, I lost his lucky horseshoe now. The girl's eyes widened, and she pointed to the door. Well, if you're looking for something's lost, my grandpa used to be the blacksmith, she said. I can go ask him if he's seen it. Oh, I did. I did already, Wickless said. And wouldn't you know it, he said he must have dropped it in here all them years back and it got covered in hay. The girl bit her lip and looked at the hay around her feet. But it ain't all that big a deal. The trigger's getting old, you know, and he sure liked that horse now. But if I can't find it, I can't find it. I'm sure he'll understand. Poor trigger, the girl said. She was walking around now nudging the old hay carefully and clearly looking around for the horse now. Yeah, he's turning 34 this year, Wickless said. 
That's some time for an old draft horse. And this here is the last time I'm going to be in town before I head back home to Wyoming. Wyoming? The girl asked, giving Wickless a sad look. Poor Trigger. Yes, ma'am. Poor Trigger, Wickless said, letting himself smile when the little girl turned around. She wasn't a woman, but she had enough shapeliness and all the right workings. Given the flatness of that dress she was wearing, she might be better put together under all that than he gave her credit for. You know, you wouldn't mind helping me find it, would you? I'm sure if we work together, we could find it before my train leaves. The girl gave him that perfect, direct look only a child can give and nodded her head. He smiled damn near ear to ear and waved his hand over the space around them, urging her to look here and there. After a minute, he laid his hand on her shoulder, feeling himself stir when she didn't so much as flinch under his glove. Now, what's your name? He asked. The girl turned to him, hands clasped politely. Emma J? She replied. Emma J, he said. Do you ever get a sort of stiffness in your legs? Like you can't quite move them a lot the day after you run around a bunch of work. Her eyes widened and she nodded, impressed he knew this thing about her. He nodded in turn, moving his hand up her neck and massaging it at its base. She laughed and pushed him off. Emma J, he said. I think you've got a case of the withers. He gave a sage nod and patted her thigh. She frowned, waiting for an explanation. Well, you see, the withers is just a basic old sort of problem horses get. I'm a horse doctor, you know. And people, they can get it too. Is it bad? She asked. Oh, no, not at all. So long as you get a lot of treatment for it, he replied with a smile. He adjusted himself so he was in front of her. You just gotta diagnose it right away. Then you can get treatment for it. How's that? A dia... A, a diagnosis? She asked. It's where I touch your leg and let you know if it's okay, Wickless said. The girl shifted uncomfortably, wringing the loose fabric of her dress in her hands. Her mouth cocked sideways as she thought this new information over. I ain't got money, she said. Mock boy gets favors and that's where the money goes. I can't get sick too. She stomped her foot and glared at the sunshine outside the door. No, no, sweetheart, he said. Free of charge. Yeah, okay, she said. You can just touch my leg and tell? Oh yeah, but I gotta take my gloves off, he said. To get the feel. He nodded at her until she was nodding along. Then he smiled and rubbed her cheek with his thumb. During this whole song and dance, he'd shepherded her all the way back against the old furnace, well out of the light coming in through the door. He pulled off the glove on his right hand, and the girl was so startled she hissed and pointed. What's that? She asked. He smiled and looked at his hand. It was covered wrist to tip in petroleum jelly, enough that it rose from his skin in little peaks flecked with bits of dirty, blackened leather from the inside of his glove. Just some petroleum jelly, he said. I keep my hands soft in case I have to touch a lady. It'll make your skin soft too, 
He frowned. Well, we don't want to get any on your pretty dress. It's not so pretty, the girl said, whispering. She was nervous now and didn't know why. Something about the moment had changed, had become something else. It's beautiful. Wickless said the words slowly, and the next words slower. Just like you, little Emma J. Now why don't you grab that dress down by your ankles and pull it up so I don't get anything on it? She swallowed and did as he said, only then noticing how far she'd gotten from the door. It was so big and she'd been in here so many times, but now it seemed like a small, infinitely distant thing. Useless, somehow. I think I want to go, she said, but he grabbed her then, tightly, just above the knee. His thumb pressed into the flesh of her thigh, rubbing in slow circles. The contact froze her like a rabbit in a lamplight. Her body shook. He rubbed slower, breathing heavy and laying his head against her. Does that hurt? He asked in a voice she didn't know about. An adult sort of voice she'd never heard somebody use. Does it? A little, she whispered. But it feels good too, don't it? He whispered pushing his head into her chin. Then his sweaty hair was rubbing on her cheek. It made her entire body heat up and shake like when she'd gotten the chicken pox. Yes, she said, clenching her eyes shut. Hey now, boy, a voice called from the door. And the girl saw it wasn't so dark and useless and far away anymore. It was the same old door, but with a new shape in it a woman in heavy work clothes, a hat down low over her eyes. The shadows were dark on her, save for her left eye, which seemed to almost glow. Let her go. Mind your own business, Wickless said, adjusting his body and sliding his hand up until his fingers were reaching around to Emma J's buttock. His thumb was... was... Emma J's a friend of mine, aren't you, Emma J? He looked like he might kill her, and she swallowed. Say so, he whispered in her ear. He's... he's my friend, the girl said. You get over here, girl, the woman said. She didn't so much as move, but the building seemed to flex when she spoke. Wings fluttered beneath the roof overhead, and shadows of loose feathers flicked across the walls. Emma J's own heart felt like the doors in the cellar had looked when the big storms had come last fall. She realized she was breathing heavy. The woman wouldn't be denied, and so Emma J tried to obey. Wickless squeezed her where he knew it would hurt her, embarrass her. Her breath caught in her chest and she froze again. I said to mind your own business, woman. Get over here now, girl, the woman shouted. And Emma J felt the electricity in the air fill her spine, felt it radiate into her fingers and toes. She struggled out of Wickless's grip, falling in the straw and then scrambling toward the woman and pulling her dress down where it was supposed to be, holding it there like it might flutter up again on its own. Wickless remained where he was, knuckles against the cold floor. Yawn, get girl, the woman said, eyes flashing like seaborne thunderheads. 
Emma J was out the door and spring for home even as the woman called after her. And you let me find out you're talking to strangers again, I'm gonna have your ma whip you bloody. She turned her attention to the man against the bricks, storming over before he could push himself up and bending him back over the furnace with her full weight. He tried to push back, but steel flashed before his eyes and found its way to his neck. He had no way to get to the sixer on his hip and no way to push her off. So he smiled. Can't a man have a conversation with a girl these days? He asked. The woman's eyes were hot, wild. He found himself more stirred up than when the little girl had let him touch her. The woman said nothing, just sucked her teeth and backed off him. The knife left much slower than her, however, tracing a slow path over every vein and artery on the right of his throat. Why are you even back here? He asked. The only man with a lighter in this outfit, ain't you? She said back, looking him up and down. If all you wanted was a lighter, he said, reaching into his shirt pocket and taking it out. You could have just asked. She took it when he handed it to her, lighting a cigarette she'd already had dangling from her lips. She flicked her razor shut and put it away, giving him ample time to drop his hand to his holster. But it was empty. She grinned at him, and when she turned away, he saw his sixer tucked into the back of her belt. I like not to kill folks, the woman said, taking his gun out of her belt and flicking open the chamber. She held it over her head as she walked out of the barn, letting his bullets fall into the dust and then tossing his pistol out into the street. Strike one. That's the warning. I bet I'll find out what that pussy tastes like. He whispered once the sound of her footsteps had faded, pushing himself to his feet. Bitch, you'll fucking beg me for it. Then he looked at his greasy hand and tried flicking away the dust and straw sticking to it, mulling over a few ugly thoughts before he unbuttoned his fly and crept into the dark behind the furnace. Next time on Sin Carriers... Ruthless Pinkertons pursue our travelers across the desert and into the Sierra Nevada, where the train is scheduled to make its second stop. There, Tolliver rendezvous with a longtime associate he's not happy to be reunited with. On the way, the old priest, Mildover Kane, introduces the young accountant, Elam Price, to the assembly and operations of a rifle. Still sore from being interrupted by Sue, the despicable, if unassuming, Colt Wickless tries to bully another of the train's passengers. Following Penbrook's severe injury, Moira asks Vasily to inspect the rigging over the woodpiles, giving them a chance to bond in the process. But with the Pinkertons close on their tail and them none the wiser, will our untested security crew succumb to a devious ambush? Could one of the train's more nefarious passengers use the ensuing chaos to their own end? And will Vasily manage to avoid his new nemesis, Tolliver, all while growing closer to the man's daughter? You may find the answers to these questions and more on the next exciting episode of Sin Carriers Drop-Offs. And until next time, as always, stay safe out there.
Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small-town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning Westside Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast. Due for release by Henlow Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.